You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi folks, and welcome to Let's Talk Photography, episode 41, the show for February 2017. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts. Uh, it's just me again this month, um, because, well, people liked it when I did it last time, so I guess that means I can do this from time to time, and, you know, people will enjoy it. So, it's going to be me talking to you again about a topic, and it, it's sort of a, a topic I've been wanting to do for a while, and one that I think is particularly suited to just being a, a one-on-one chat, rather than being a panel or an interview, and it's basically, how does a camera work? Uh seems like a very fundamental question but I actually think there's a lot of value in understanding how a camera works because it allows you to do a, to sort of have a better idea why you want to do certain things when it comes to taking our modern digital cameras and turning them ever towards ever more manual modes with ever less automation having your back and so I guess the first step to moving away from automation or, or more of it than you want uh, is to to know what the automation is actually doing for you, and then you can decide, well, actually, no, I'll, I'll let the camera do that, uh, but I actually want to take control over this or the other or whatever. So we're actually going to start pretty much right at the beginning. So in order to have a camera, you actually need two things. You need something to cast an image onto a plane, in other words, onto a flat surface, and then you need that flat surface to somehow be recordable, to somehow be photosensitive to somehow take a record of the image that's been cast onto it. So those two parts were invented actually before anyone managed to put the two together uh, into what we would now consider to be a camera. So the very simplest way of casting an image is a pinhole. If you take some sort of box and you put a pinhole in it and if you put yourself inside the box if you get it or whatever you will notice that there's a very, very faint image of the world outside projected onto the back of the box. And you can do this sort of at a room-sized box. And in actual fact, that's where we get the name for a camera from, because camera is the Italian for room. So it comes from something called a camera obscura, which was a room with a pinhole, and the outside world would be projected onto the back wall. Now, with a pinhole, you have the advantage that you don't have to focus. So if you make a perfect, infinitesimally small pinhole, you will then get an image from that pinhole that you don't have to focus. The thing is, if it's infinitesimally small, it will also be infinitesimally bright. In other words, very, 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 very faint. So... In order to make a useful image, your pinhole has to be bigger than like an atom or something. It has to be actually a hole that you can sort of see. Uh, And the bigger you make the hole, the fuzzier your image gets. Because what's effectively... One way you can sort of think about it is an infinitely small hole casts a perfectly sharp image. But a hole that's twice as big as an infinitely small hole, which isn't really possible, but bear with me, casts two images slightly out of line with each other. And basically, the bigger you make the pinhole, the more interference you have from all these different possible ways light can come in through the hole. 
and you get a fuzzier and fuzzier image to the point where if you have a really big hole, you have no image anymore. It's just a, a fuzzy mess. Now, the other thing that's going on is the bigger you make the hole, the more light is getting in. So you have this horrible balancing act with the pinhole. Um, the smaller you make the hole, the sharper your image, and the dimmer your image, so the harder it is to actually record it. So a pinhole camera is very difficult. Now, th this was even an issue in the days of the camera obscura because... It was actually used as a technique for painting landscapes. You you would have a portable, potentially, camera obscura, and you would put it in front of the landscape you wanted to paint, and then this image of the landscape would be cast onto the back of the box you were in, and then you could trace it and then bring home your tracing, go home and paint at your leisure. Uh, but, of course, if the image was very faint, it's very difficult to trace it. So it was discovered that the way you get around the problem of making the hole bigger, making the image go fuzzy is you use a lens. And when you use a lens, you have the advantage that the hole can be as big as your lens is, which means you can let in as much light as you can afford to make a lens. Uh, but the price you pay for the extra light is the fact that you now have to focus your image. So the lens doesn't cast an image everywhere. It only casts it onto a focal point or a focal plane to be specific, and I can hear my physics professor shouting at me, so a focal plane. Uh, so you can only see, you can only get an image of what it is you focused on, so that's an extra complication. But okay, if you have a dark room with a hole in the front, and you stick a lens through that hole, you can project an image of the world outside onto that back wall. Um, it will actually be upside down and inverted left to right, but that's fine. You can um, turn your resulting image of the way around two in your mind, or if you're drawing, that's certainly straightforward. So that's half of the equation. That's the ability to cast an image. And so really, even in today's most modern cameras, we're basically left with the same concept. We have a lens which we use to focus an image onto a plane. And that then leaves us with the other half of the equation. So that is the photosensitive material half of the equation. So we discovered, actually before we discovered photography, we, had the, we discovered that some chemicals, when you expose them to light, change. So if light hits them, they become different than if light doesn't hit them. So that's, that makes them what we would say is photosensitive. So they're, they're sensitive to light. And initially people would do fun things like they would make a photosensitive mixture. They would put a leaf on this photo, something coated in this photosensitive mixture, put it out in the sun so that the whole sheet that's not part of the leaf gets exposed and the bit that is part of the leaf doesn't get exposed and then you do some more chemistry to it and you end up with an image of the leaf. So there's no focusing going on here, but you can you get this really, really cool, really fine detail from these silhouettes that you can cast in this way. Uh, so it, inevitably, once people started to learn about photosensitive stuff, and people already knew about the camera obscura, it was kind of inevitable that someone would put the two things together and attempt to focus a projected image onto a light-sensitive plane. Something light-sensitive put on the focal plane of your little camera obscura. And, of course, rather than having it be a room size that you get into, you don't need to get into it if you're going to have a photosensitive plate in there to capture the picture. So then you can make the, ca the room into a box. And you end up, 
perhaps with a pinhole camera if you don't bother with the lens or you end up with a very ba- a very basic camera so a box with something photosensitive on the back and a lens on the front and that is a camera and that really kind of is all there is to it in some regards there's obviously plenty of subtlety in there so initially the the very first cameras were like astonishingly unsensitive so it would take eight hours for the image to form so some of the very first images is like a scene out of a window which it all looks a bit weird because it took eight hours to make the picture and in those eight hours the sun moved across the sky and so the shadows do all sorts of weird things and so these very very long exposure images and slowly over time the chemistry improves and we end up in 1839 with photography being invented and what's kind of i always find fascinating is that it was invented twice pretty much at the same time because it was something that people it was such a natural thing to want to do that it was inevitable that people were going to strive towards it. sort of like an an invention that was always going to happen the question was who did it and how and the two people who did it well okay so Nieps was a French chap who worked with another French chap called Daguerre, and the two of them together did most of the hard work, and then Nieps unfortunately popped his clogs before the final, you know, big announcement was made, so Daguerre sort of ran with it, um, and so Daguerre announced that he discovered photography in 1839, and very humbly named his type of photography the Daguerreotype, and so in his case you have a lens focusing light onto a metallic plate that's been coated with uh, salts of silver i think it was basically it's, it's a chemical process anyway silver is definitely involved i think or was it mercury anyway some sort of chemical process and when wherever the light hit it chemically altered the plate and wherever the light didn't hit it didn't chemically alter the plate and it was there's a scale in between so a little bit of light alters the chemistry less than a lot of light and so you would open the lens cover let the light flow in for a minute or so or 30 seconds or maybe two minutes depends on how much light there is you know tens of seconds so we're not talking about the hours and hours and hours like the very early experimentation that Nieps was doing you're talking tens of seconds um to a couple of minutes and then you would put the lens cap back on you would take the metal plate out of the back of the box with the lens at the front and you would uh, hold it, you basically you'd, you'd make the chemistry happen. Uh, so the light has been hitting it and altering the chemical structure of the plate, and then you would do something to bring out the image, to develop the image. And that involved steaming the plate over boiling mercury, uh, which is highly unhealthy. Uh, so it did uh, bring us to the concept of mad as a daguerreotypist, because basically they all went a little bit cuckoo, because they were just breathing in mercury fumes all the time. But anyway, the mercury would attach to part... How the mercury interacted with the metal plate depended on how much light had interacted with the plate while it was in the back of the camera. And that's how you got the image out. So it was chemists... So the, First you cover the plate in a light-sensitive chemical, you let the light hit it, and then you develop it by holding it over a boiling vat of mercury. And then that has another chemical reaction, and then you have an image which is fixed, and that you can look at. But the thing is, the image you held in your hand, 
And the thing that was actually in the back of the camera in in the focal plane was actually the same thing. It was the one piece of metal. So on the one hand, you had the advantage that the detail was superb because down to the size of a molecule was effectively the size of your grains. And so you had a very, very sharp, very, very detailed image, but you had exactly one of them. And you couldn't make any more. You could, you know, take your camera to the same place find your tripod holes from last time, put your tripod back in those holes, wait for the sun to be in exactly the same position, which I guess happens once a year if you're going to be very exact about it, and then you could do it again. But the wind might be different, the clouds might be different, you know, the stuff will be different. So actually, you have an unreproducible photograph, but it's very detailed. Meanwhile, a little bit behind, but not very far behind uh, Daguerre, where there was uh, an English chap who was also working on experimenting with photochemi- er, photosensitive chemicals and a f- projected image onto a focal plane, a camera. Um, Fox Talbot was his name, and he was, he was an aristocrat, so he had time on his hands. And he approached it differently. He used waxed paper rather than a metal um, backing for his chemical processes, which meant that he would put the paper into the back of his camera coated in various um, materials. The light would hit it, he would develop it, and he would end up with an inverted image that was the wrong way round. So everything that was bright was dark, and everything that was dark was bright. And then he would put another piece of paper in contact with this first piece of paper and shine light through it. And he would use waxed paper so it shone through a little bit better. And then he would have a normal positive image. And the thing is, he could turn his one original into infinitely many uh, positive copies. So one original negative into infinitely many positive copies. Again, all black and white, of course, the same with Daguerre. It's just how much light. No idea what colour the light was, just how much light. And that was infinitely reproducible, so you could make as many copies as you liked of each image. But unfortunately, uh, because you're shining through paper, which isn't really good at being transparent, even if you wax it, it's not great at the whole transparency thing, it was way, way, way less detailed. You couldn't get the fine detail that you could get from Daguerre through the Talbot type, or the Callow type, as it became known. Uh, Fox Talbot didn't seem to be quite as uh, vain as Mr. Daguerre. He didn't like it being called the Talbot type, so he called it the Callow type. And so, at that point, we have two different types of photography, and they both sort of get us an awful, awful lot further along from drawing pictures. So basically projecting an image onto the back of a camera so big you sat inside it, and then you trace the outline of, of your quote-unquote photograph yourself by drawing on the back wall of your quote-unquote camera, which is the camera obscura, you're now into a stage where at least you can get an automatic image out. So point device at scene, wait a certain amount of time, do a little bit of chemistry, get image. So that that's not bad. We've come on, you know, we're coming along well here. So I guess the next stage in photography's evolution is kind of all about what we do with the thing we put on the image plane. So that's really what's changed most over time is what it is that goes on that focal plane. So you have a lens that casts an image onto a focal plane and what you choose to put on that focal plane is where an awful lot of the future of photography lies. So the next clever thing to do was to take Fox Hulbert's basic idea but replace the paper with something else. Replace the paper with glass, because glass is see-through properly. So if you put your photosensitive chemicals onto glass, put the glass in the back of your camera, let the light hit the glass, 
And then you develop your negative onto that glass, and then you put another negative, another uh, piece of glass in front of that negative and shine light through it to make your positive. You're now shining through glass instead of shining through um, paper. So you have way more detail. And in fact, you can put a piece of paper in contact with your glass so you can have your final image on paper still, but without paper sort of ruining it by being in the way of the light coming through. So th that gives you glass plate photography, and that, that's a big step up. I say it's a big step up because the, out the output is much better, but you're still talking about uncomfortably long exposure times, and also rather difficult chemistry because the stuff that they were using initially on these glass plates, they were known as wet plate. It was a wet plate collodion process because the chemistry only worked while the chemicals were wet. And once the chemicals dried, they stopped working. So that meant that if you wanted to take a picture of something spectacular like the Yosemite Valley in the States, you had to carry your glass plates. You're obviously your physically large camera. And you had to carry all of your chemicals and a dark room, or a dark tent, realistically. And you would mix up all of your chemicals in your dark room, or your dark tent. You would coat your piece of glass, and then carry it to your camera inside a holder so it wouldn't get hit by any light. Shove it into your camera, take off your lens cap, let it expose for the required amount of time, depending on how sunny it is, etc., Put your lens cap back on, take your glass plate out using a holder so you don't get it uh, exposed on your way, back into your tent, and then finish off the chemistry to create your negative image. And then your negative image would be fixed, so you could keep that, and then go home with that, and at your leisure, print as many positives off that negative as you liked. So that was still quite cumbersome, but the output, the, the end resulting images are actually quite nice, and they were of a good quality, and you could have infinitely many of them so you can keep reproducing them so now you have the concept that you can have photography as a job you can go out and take pictures of things and then sell prints uh, all of these chemical processes are not particularly light sensitive so that means you have long exposure times but it also means that when you're doing your printing you're doing what's called a contact print so the size of the final output is exactly the same as the size of the of the original negative image. So that's why when you see pictures of these old guys, they had these massive cameras, because whatever size their camera was, that was the size. So whatever size the piece of sensitive material in the back of the camera was, that was the size of the final images that came out of that camera. It wasn't until we got better at chemistry where we were able to make chemicals that were even more sensitive to light that we were able to do something called enlarging, which is basically you shine the light through the negative and then you, using lenses, you basically, sort of like an overhead projector. You think of an overhead projector, you have a small acetate which you project to be something big. Well, you that's what an enlarger is, right? You're projecting a bigger version of your negative onto your photosensitive material. But the thing is, as you spread light out to zoom in, it gets dimmer because there's the same amount of photons go in and then they, those photons get bent out to enlarge the image. So that means that you're losing every square inch of the enlarged has less photons of light hitting it. So that's why enlarging is difficult because the more you enlarge, the more light you need or the more time you need or the more sensitive chemistry you need. So it took a while to develop chemistry sensitive enough to do enlarging. And once enlarging was possible, I think that made a lot of things easier. 
Um, another thing that changed relatively early on in photography's history was that someone discovered a new chemistry still working on glass, but instead of it having to be wet, it was something called dry plate photography. And as you might expect from the name, the difference here is that you can do your you can prepare your glass plates in the comfort of your home, seal them so that no light gets into them, some sort of light tight box. Then take your pre-coated plates to your place you want to do your photography, shove them into the back of your camera using some sort of appropriate holder so that you can keep them dark and try this whole process. Take your lens cap off, do your exposure, pop your lens cap back on, and then take your plate back out, being careful not to let any like it into it, bring it home, and then in the comfort of your own home... Do the final bit of chemistry to fix that image, to develop that image into the negative, which you can then print off at your leisure as many times as you like. So that's a significant step forward from having to do your chemistry in the field. And I should also mention the chemistry in the field involved, I believe it was, I believe collodion is explosive. I think that was the explosive bit. But one of the chemicals involved in doing that wet plate collodion process blew up very easily. Um, so if you were taking a cart up a mountain road or something and you, you sort of hit a pothole, your entire photographic equipment could literally explode. Uh, so that was another advantage to the dry plate technique, less explosions. This is definitely easier. Uh, the next big step actually in making what goes on the film plane more human friendly is the invention of film. So instead of having solid, unbendable pieces of glass, someone had the bright idea to use cellulose, which is see-through. You can coat it with something, you can put an emulsion on it, and you can bend it. And that then brought us into the film era of photography. And, you know, initially some of those films were probably quite large, but eventually we settled on a 35mm format, which is actually a moving picture format, but it works just as well for still images, and it allowed uh, it allowed cameras to become really what was for the time very small. Uh, you know, a thirty five millimeter camera was extremely dinky by the what had gone before to the point actually where a lot of photographers saw them as toys, which is silly in hindsight, but that's how it always is, right? Photoshop was seen as a toy as well when it came out. A lot of, a lot of new things are seen as toys. So. That brings us into the film era of photography. So what we have, we still have our lens. We're always going to have our lens projecting onto a sheet of flexible film coated in light-sensitive chemicals, which you would expose, then keep them in the dark, bring them somewhere to do some more chemistry with them, which would then permanently fix a negative image, which you could then enlarge and print from. And that has us to 35mm style photography. And, of course, once you have it as a film, you can do clever things like put that film into a little canister. So it's really quite small and self-contained. It rolls out, goes through your camera, and then when it's finished, it's spooled all back inside the same little canister it came on that you can then very easily keep dark because it's all inside. Bring it to your place to be developed. Bring it to your one-hour photo or whatever, if you're old enough to remember that, and get it done. So things are getting a lot easier, and that's... um, arguably sort of where we left it. Now, film photography has some downsides because we've ended up, in order to make it work properly, 
we've had to sort of group our photosensitive chemicals into what we call grains. And to make it more light sensitive, you would use larger grains, and which is why you might end up with very grainy photographs. Basically, the light sensitive chemical sort of came on that size of chunk. So whereas in the very early days of photography, there was almost at the molecular level, the, the resolution was infinite. Our heavily enlarged film photography, we had often quite grainy film, unless you went for very high quality film, which tended to be quite slow. So you, again, you're in the, the issue of the longer you can let light hit it, the less light sensitive you're trying to make the chemicals, the, the, the better images you're going to get out. But in the real world, we want to be able to enlarge because otherwise 35mm film is useless. And we want our exposure times to be as short as possible so that we can catch people playing sports or walking in the street or moving in any sort of a way. So that's sort of where we end up there. Now, at this point, of course, what we do not yet have is any sort of colour film or colour photography, period. Actually, we have no... All photography, initially, is capturing how much light hit our photosensitive contraption. So the camera obscura where there's a guy in there tracing over it, that guy in there tracing over it could, in theory, bring some paints with him or her, and they could paint the colours they see as well as just tracing. So in theory, you could get colour images that way, and indeed, painters who use camera obscuras, uh, Vermeer probably did actually, It's he, his, photo, his photographs, no, paintings, his paintings have like lens effects, like depth of field and these kind of things, which implies very heavily that he was indeed using a camera obscura, and therefore he was getting optical effects in his paintings. So arguably that's the first colour photography, a very, very manual process. But it was an image projected by a lens onto a plane, at which point it was somehow fixed. The somehow fixed was Vermeer painting, but nonetheless somehow fixed. Anyway, colour then comes back onto the scene much later, um, and initially the way you would get colour would be to take three photographs of the same thing. So sort of the way colour theory works is that you can construct a colour image out of any of the three primary colours. Basically, if you capture all the red light, all the green light, and all the blue light, and if you then put that back together, you can get any colour of light you like. And so the very early colour processes, you would have, imagine a camera with three lenses and three lens planes and three pieces of film or three pieces of glass, three three photosensitive things. And then you would put a transparent colour filter on the front of each of the um, three lenses. And then you would get one film counting... Still in black and white, but it would be counting how much blue there was, and another one counting how much red there was, and another one counting how much green there was. And if you then print those three images on top of each other, one of them in green ink, one of them in red ink, and one of them in blue ink, you can then reconstruct things. So the amount of red is determined by the amount of red there was originally, the amount of blue by the amount of blue there was originally, and so forth. And that gives you transpar- a colour transparency. It's difficult, though. Um... Colour film was done by basically you have grains that are sensitive to the different colours and so some of the grains are green grains and some of the grains are blue grains and some of the grains are red grains and it, it may not be, you know, they don't have to be those three primary colours but basically any three colours which are appropriately positioned within the colour wheel you can you can do the same thing with. And so that's how you would get your colour photographs on film. Basically you would have different grains would be sensitive to different colours of light and so you capture all the colour information that way. So that then brings us along to digital photography. 
which is the final piece of the puzzle. And in digital photography, we still have the lens up the front projecting an image onto a focal plane. And then we put something that is sensitive to light on the focal plane. So for most of the history of photography, it was chemistry that was doing the the work at the focal plane of recording the image somehow. Some sort of photosensitive chemical process. Well, in the digital age, it's a photoelectric effect that's doing the work. So you place some sort of what we would call a sensor, which is a piece of solid-state electronics which reacts to light. Um, one way you can visualize a digital sensor is as a great big array of buckets. And every time a photon of light hits a bucket, it produces an electron which then gets trapped. And so if lots of light hits a particular bucket then there are lots of electrons in that bucket, and therefore that bucket has a large electric charge. If a part of your grid doesn't get hit by much light, there are very few photons in there, and the result is a low charge. And that's why these things are called CCDs, charge-coupled devices. So you then measure the charge in each of your buckets, and that tells you how much light hit each of your buckets. So those buckets we would usually refer to as pixels, and the amount of light will tell you how bright or how dim to make that pixel. And you put it together and you get a black and white image. Hang on a second. You get a black and white image, but our digital images are not black and white. Okay, well, we're back to doing our old trick of capturing red, green, and blue light separately. So you will randomly color a third of your pixels in red, a third in green, and a third in blue. Remembering which is which, of course. And that way you can reconstruct the image in color. Um, and in fact, how you lay out your reds, your greens, and your blues is an important part of how you do your photography. Because if you if you lay it out in too regular a pattern, you end up with these bizarre interference patterns, which you can then get around by intentionally blurring the image and then intentionally resharpening it, and all these kind of digital signal processing, basically. Uh, so there's actually a bit of a knack to how you lay out the different colors of pixel on your CCD on your sensor. Um, and some cameras will use other tricks, like keeping some of the pixels actually as pan as monochrome pixels. Basically, don't put a filter on them. Don't only let red, green, or blue light in. Let all the light in, in a set of the pixels, and use some for red, some for green, some for blue. And then in total, you can use the effectively black and white pixels to help you get the structure of your image down. And then you use the color pixels to help you color in the, the different bits of your image. And so you can do those kind of hybrid approaches. But there's a lot of engineering and a lot of physics goes into making these digital sensors ever better um let me see some of the common problems are you need what you're trying to get you want the you want the little pixel buckets to be as small as possible to give you higher and higher resolutions uh, but you also if you make them too small then too few photons will land in such a small area so that means that the difference in charge between a bright area and a dark area is very little and electrons have a habit of jumping around when they get warm. And by warm, I mean anything above absolute zero. Well, we all live above absolute zero or we'd be dead. So there are constantly electrons jumping around. And those electrons are what give you noise in a digital image. And that means that in order to get some signal out of your noise, you need to make sure that you're capturing enough electrons. And so that's why it's actually quite difficult to make a digital sensor that's particularly sensitive. And as you dial up the ISO on your digital camera, all you're actually doing is changing the gain 
in this sort of question of how do I tell the signal from the noise, you're amplifying the little bit of signal you've managed to get, and that's why you end up amplifying the noise too. Um, it's all just you know signal processing problems. Uh, you also you need to actually run electronics to each of those pixels. Each of those pixels has to be connected back into the computery part of the digital camera so that it can actually do the um, you know, read the charge for that pixel. So there's millions and millions of cable, quote unquote cables. They're not really cables. They're all printed circuit boards. But you have to leave room for those. Well, everywhere that's carrying those currents is not collecting light. So your pixels don't actually touch each other. There's gutters between them where they can run the electronics. And some some cameras are trying to do things like have as much as possible of the electronics behind the pixels so that you have as much as possible of the surface uh, be doing the capturing of the light. You want your buckets to be as big as you can. So that's why a full-frame sensor is so much better than a teeny-tiny sensor in a phone camera because physically bigger buckets means physically more electrons means less danger of noise, or rather the noise is so much less obvious than the signal, or the signal-to-noise ratio is so much better. And there's all of this kind of stuff going on. So it's really complex engineering in terms of making materials that are better at turning photons into electrons, making material that makes it harder for, um, you know, thermically charged, not quite charged, but basically thermally excited electrons to jump around as much. That would make noise less. Then you just have better maths to sort of figure out what is noise and what is signal more accurately and therefore filter out the noise. It's still physically there, but you filter it out so it actually makes it as far as the little computer, be it in your camera or your actual computer afterwards, has the noise taken out. Um, There's an awful, awful, awful lot going on. But at the same time, What's going on, whether it be your iPhone or the most expensive fancy pants full-frame camera you can buy today, is you have a lens focusing light on a plane at which is located a light-sensitive material which captures the image the lens has projected onto it. And that is all of photography, capturing those images projected onto that plane. Now, while capturing the image projected onto the plane is the name of the game, is what it's all about and always has been about in photography, there is still a little bit more to it than that. So, in the very olden days, because the film, or sorry, not even film, it was glass, because the photosensitive chemical material was so unlight sensitive, or as we would say in, in the jargon, so slow, because it took a long time for the light to have an effect on it, so that's slow, you didn't have to be very accurate. So if you wanted to take a picture of a landscape, you sort of looked around and went, "Mm, it's about midday, I'd say my exposure time is about four minutes. And you'd pop the lens cap off with your hand, you'd count to 64 times in your head, you might have a pocket watch maybe, and then when you thought about four minutes gone by, you'd stick the lens cap back on. And if you're out by 10%, well, you're only out, 10% was many, many seconds. So it was very easy to be accurate enough. But of course, now that we have much, much faster um, photosensitive materials, whether they be films or whether they be uh, digital sensors, we now need to time what's going on an awful lot quicker. We need to be much more accurate. Fractions of a second is now our exposure time. So that means we need shutters which is why we have a shutter on our camera. So the shutter is something which opens and closes 
the lens effectively so the pathway the shutter sits between the physical lens and the focal plane stopping light getting in until you open the shutter then light gets in briefly and then you close the shutter again and light stops getting in so the, the, the photosensitive material is, is not exposed not exposed briefly exposed and then not exposed again and if you have film then at that point you would wind the film on so that it's out of the way for the next shot or if you have um, a digital sensor you will read the charges in each of your pixels you will then send the electrical signal to tell each little bucket to empty itself flush all the pixels and then you're ready for the shutter to open again for more photons to come in and either do some chemistry or do some electronics and record the next image Uh, so that's where your shutter comes in and so what your shutter is controlling is for how long the light is striking your photosensitive material whether that be glass, film, or um, a digital sensor. So that's what your shutter is physically doing. The next thing that you have some sort of control over, actually, well, I say next thing, maybe we didn't quite start with the first thing, but the other thing to mention is that one of the controls, or one of the things that determines how your photograph is going to turn out is how light-sensitive the material is that's sitting on your focal plane. So in the film days, it would be written on the box. This roll of film is so sensitive. And the standard for it was initially, in my early days with film, it was ASA, which is the American Standards Association, I believe. So you might have like ASA 400 meant a certain sensitivity. It was a scale. And then ASA was replaced with the International Standards Organization. So then you ended up with ISOs. So ISO 400, which happened to be identically the same as ASA 400. Uh, which is convenient. So your ISO is a measure of how light-sensitive the thing on the focal plane is. Now, in the days of chemistry, that was a physical property of the chemistry. Whereas in the days of digital, it's a combination of two things. It's a combination of the physical properties of the sensor and the mathematics applied to the raw electron counts as they're converted to an image, which you can think of as a gain. So you can think of the ISO button or the ISO dial on a digital camera as gain. Basically, how much do I multiply by? Because the actual numbers are just teeny, teeny, weeny, tiny. And so they're being amplified to give you the final image. And the more you amplify, the higher the ISO that it's simulating being in the old film days. So the more light-sensitive it effectively is. And that's why if you dial the ISO really high on a digital camera, you end up with really poor images. And you tend to get your best images when you allow the sensor to go with the most natural gain. So and different cameras will have a different sweet spot. Okay, so that gives us how, how sensitive stuff is to light is the first thing that matters. Uh, And the second thing, then your shutter, is how long is the light allowed to hit this light-sensitive material? Because to get an actual image, what you need is enough light that the image registers, but not so much light that the whole image becomes overexposed. So the whole of the art of photography is sort of finding the right combination of settings to make that happen. And the final thing we have that allows us some control here, so... The light sensitivity may or may not be in our control depending on the hardware we're using. The shutter is definitely within our control. And then the last thing which is also in our control is no, it's something we call the aperture. And an aperture is a fancy pants word for a hole. And it is literally how big of a hole 
should we allow light to come through? Now, the largest possible is whatever size your lens is. So, in the olden days, your lens was your lens, and that was how much light came in. And if you wanted to stop some light, you would actually physically take little washer-like things and put them in front of your lens to block off an outer ring of your lens. And they were called stops, because they stopped light. And to this day, we still measure sort of how much of our aperture we're, we're blocking versus not blocking. We still measure it in stops. Now, we actually have something called a focal ratio, which is mathematics I don't want to get into in this install, in this uh, podcast. But we still talk about them in terms of stops because they used to be physically things you put on the lens. Now, on our modern cameras, what you will tend to find inside your lens is a set of what we call blades, which come in from the edges, and the fancier your lens is, the more blades you'll have, which means that the hole they create is closer and closer to being a perfect circle. And those blades, as they move in and out, they basically can go from a smallest possible size to being completely not blocking any of your lens. And that's the range of aperture that your lens is capable of. And so those blades nowadays are built into the lens. If you have an old manual lens, it's probably on the base where the lens clicks into the camera, you'll find a little tab that sticks out. And if you move that tab physically up and down with your fingers, you can watch the blades come in and out because all the camera is doing is moving that little tab that sticks out at the bottom of the lens up and down to, to select how wide or how narrow the blade should be for the photograph you're taking when you fire it, when you press the shutter. Um, so that's always something fun, actually, on my old manual lens cameras is, you know, lifting, you know, moving that tab manually, you can watch the blades come in and out. So the aperture controls how physically big the hole is and therefore the more you constrict the hole the less light comes in and the more you open the hole the more light comes in so by juggling all three of the the possible settings you need to end up with an end result where enough light hits the photosensitive material for the image to register but not so much that it gets completely overwhelmed in other words you need a proper exposure and you get a proper exposure by a combination of how sensitive is the material? How long do you light? Do you let the light hit that light-sensitive material? Your shutter speed, and how big of a hole do you let that light come through? Your aperture, and that is balancing those three numbers is the art and craft of photography. Now, unfortunately, it's not as simple as just balancing the three numbers because each of those three numbers has side effects. So the primary effect of the shutter is that it lets light in, but that has some interesting side effects because if stuff is moving then the longer you leave the shutter open the more blur you get of that movement so if some if something is like a waterfall or whatever then for some of that shot different parts of the water and different physical parts of the image and so if you get a blur because stuff is moving and if you leave the shutter open for a second or two you get a lot of blur if you are moving the camera while you take the exposure, well then everything's blurring unless it's moving at exactly the same rate as you're moving the camera. So if you want to freeze action, you're trying to get really, really short shutter speed so that blur is as little as possible of an issue. Or if you're trying to exaggerate blur, you're trying to get, be it a zoom blur, a pan blur, a motion blur, you're trying to do something to allow motion to become obvious, well then you want the side effect of having a long exposure. And in order to make that possible, you may have to compensate somewhere else. You may have to stop your lens right down so very little, so the hole is as small as possible, because otherwise the film or the digital sensor will be overwhelmed. Or maybe you want to use 
maybe you even want to put effectively sunglasses on your camera so that would be a neutral density filter effectively just darken the entire lens so that less light gets through any of it even the bit that isn't blocked off by the aperture and the aperture blades um the side effect then of the light sensitivity is that throughout history you've always paid a price for having more light sensitivity um whether that be bigger grains or whether that be uh, more noise but the, the higher you dial up that ISO, the more light sensitive you make your digital or your chemical thing, the the less quality of image you get. That's just that's always been a side effect that's been with us. So you might think, oh, it's, you know, I'll use really short exposure and then I'll just you know dial up the ISO. Well, you'll pay for that. And then we come to aperture, which also has a side effect. So because of the physics of how a lens works basically the, the the smaller you make the hole that the light comes through the um the closer you are to a pinhole so that means that the less work the lens has to do and the effect that has is that more and more of the infinite possibilities of the universe are in focus so the distance between the nearest thing to you that's acceptably in focus and the furthest thing from you that's acceptably in focus gets longer and longer and longer as the physical size of the hole gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So if you make that hole right back down to a pinhole sort of size, you have this massive distance between the nearest thing to you that's in focus and the furthest thing away from you that's in focus. And we call that the focal depth. And in theory, if you were to be able to get down to an infinitesimally small aperture, you would be back to pinhole camera days where you have an infinite depth of field. But almost no light. Infinitely little light. So again, you're in a balancing act. Now, the the wider you open up that aperture, the more light comes through, but the, the shorter that depth of field gets. And eventually you end up with a very tiny distance between the nearest and the furthest thing. So the tip of someone's nose might be in focus, but their eyeballs might be out of focus or vice versa. So depth of field is the side effect of how big you make the hole the light can travel through. And that actually, from an artistic point of view, is an exceptionally pleasing side effect to play with because sometimes you're looking for really deep depths of fields for certain types of photography and sometimes you're looking for really shallow depths of field. So that's actually really quite a fun, creative one to play with. And in fact, exposure time is also fun and creative to play with. So the two most creative of the variations are your aperture and your exposure. So they're the two, in a lot of ways, you will tend to juggle with the most, and you're just going to try and make it possible for the ISO to work out too. And But again, it's always a balancing act. So every, it's okay, everything you do has a side effect. I want more depth of field. Okay, well then either you're going to have more noise or you're going to have a longer exposure. But I want uh, sorry, less. Yeah, so I want more depth of field on a moving subject. Well, then you want, you know, really short exposure and a really small hole. Oh, you're gonna have to dial that ISO right up. Oh, now I've got a lot of noise, right? But it's always, it's always a trade-off. Always a trade-off. Always a trade-off. And that is the craft of photography: is figuring out how to get the most artistically pleasing trade-off between these three interconnected settings which together determine how much light hits the light-sensitive material on the focal plane in the most pleasing possible way. So that is the craft of photography and the art of photography. It's all about 
balancing out those numbers, about making sure that the appropriate amounts of light hit the appropriate amount of things. Now, another thing, of course, so your camera is doing more work still. So a modern camera has all sorts of aids to you. So at the very least, even film cameras from for as long as I've been alive, there's been something called a light sensor, which is just a way of indicating to the photographer the settings you have now provide exactly the recommended amount of light for an exposure to work quote-unquote properly or too little or too much so when i was when i started shooting it was with uh, film cameras and the, the light meter was a little needle in the side of my field of view as i looked through the viewfinder and if the needle was up above the center that meant that there was too much light and if the needle was below the center it meant there was too little light and i would basically twist and clunk the different settings so there was a ring for exposure time and a ring for aperture and i would just twist and clunk until that light meter got steady and i couldn't really control the iso because it was film so i controlled it in the sense of i bought a film and then that was my iso until i was finished shooting that film and so one of the ways you could really mess things up actually in them this was you would put in an 800 iso film and forget to dial to tell the camera that it is an 800 iso and then the light meter will be wrong by a factor of two or three or whatever you're out by and then your films be ruined. Um, but leaving that aside, your ISO was kind of set in stone, and you just got to play with the two dials, and you tried to make it work. In a digital camera, we also have light meters, and if you leave the camera in fully automatic mode, the light meter isn't telling you, the human, anything. The light meter is telling the little computer brain inside the digital camera, be it in your phone camera, or be it in DSLR, or a point-and-shoot. And the phone camera is using the information from the light meter to choose what it thinks to be an acceptable balance between the three different settings it has within its power. And in the case of a digital camera, it really is three different settings it has within its power. And that's sort of, you can help it along, and that's what the little picture modes are. So if you dial the little picture mode to something that looks like a face, you're telling the camera, I am doing a portrait. And so the camera's going, okay, well, i got to make these three numbers line up, but if it's a portrait, then you probably want the shallow depth of field. So as I'm choosing how to line them up, I'll try to prioritize having a low depth of field. So I'll try make the uh, the physical hole as big as possible, which actually gives you as small as possible a focal ratio, but that's a story for another day. Uh, or if you turn it to the little picture of a landscape, well, then it knows, ah, okay, you're trying to take something in a landscape, well, then you want a really deep depth of field. Or if you click it to the guy running, then it says, oh, this is some sort of sports scene. I need to make... Whatever I do, I need to prioritize getting the exposure time as short as possible and all the rest I can compensate with. So ultimately, that's what's going on. It's the light meters making all that possible. Now, the, the other thing we should mention, of course, in terms of technology that's hidden in your camera is devices for focusing. So we, at the very least, need some sort of help in figuring out what's in focus. So in, in old film cameras, that might be in the form of... Um, I'm not quite sure how they even work, but basically I would see two different versions of the image in the middle, and if they were lined up, then the image was in focus, and if they were out of line, it meant the image was out of focus in one direction or the other. And so as you went through the focal point, you could see them sort of lining up and then coming apart again, and then you could focus that way. Or in the modern cameras, they use some sort of electronics to detect when there's the highest contrast and assume that that's when the image is in focus. Or maybe they use phase detection, or maybe they send a little infrared pulse out of the front of the camera and wait for it to bounce back and use that to, to focus. But they have some sort of mechanism for detecting focus um, and doing it for you. So autofocus is a big part of the apparatus of a modern camera. Uh, and then there are mathematical things. So 
A piece of film is sensitive to light in a given way based on its chemistry. So if you, most films will be chemically coated to give you accurate colour in daylight. Um, but that's not always true. So you would have to buy a different physical film to shoot under tungsten light or under incandescent light. Diff- literally different physical films to get properly coloured images in different types of light. Uh, our digital cameras, thankfully, it's just photons. You just count them how many reds, how many greens. So you can do it in maths. You can do it as a mathematical algorithm, basically making it look right. And that's called white balance. And so there's all of that kind of calculation going on in there as well inside your camera. So there's an awful lot going on on top of simply the lens casting an image onto a plane where something photosensitive sits and captures the image. So that is a a very big picture view of what's physically happening inside your camera. And we're going to use this as a starting point for a future installment. I haven't quite decided whether it'll be next month or the month after. Kind of depends on what takes my whim. But at a point in the future, we'll pick this discussion up again from the point of view of I have a digital camera in my hand. I right now have it set on auto and it takes pictures. I would like to learn the skills to take control away from the little computer in there, which is really quite silly because it's a little computer, and take charge of my camera myself. In other words, go from auto to manual. And maybe you don't even want to go to full manual. But every little piece of control that you can take, you basically, you want to go from a world where I don't know what the camera is doing, so I let it do its own thing, to I am fully in charge and have decided to delegate certain things to the camera and certain things to myself. And depending on the situation, you may there may be some situations where you decide to delegate almost everything to the camera, but still keep maybe control of just the aperture so that you're controlling that bit of the artistry. Or you may take complete total ownership control away from the camera and do everything completely manually. But you have to understand everything in order to, to get yourself on that spectrum. So, so that's where I want to go next with the, with this sort of installment. Um, I hope I've done a decent job of explaining these concepts. If you have any questions, you can go to let's-talk.ie forward slash photo queue and submit your question there. Uh, or you can tweet at LTPod is the Twitter handle for the podcast. Or you can leave a comment with the show notes, which you'll find over at lets-talk.ie. So basically, if you have any questions, do let me know, and that's sort of where I plan to go with this. So as I'm wrapping up, just a reminder that you will find show notes at lets-talk.ie, and while you're there, you'll see the three large blue buttons, which are the support the show buttons. Um, This this podcast has no sponsors. Um, This Basically, the only... The only way this podcast is supported is through its listeners. You fine folks are the people who keep this going. And my intention here isn't to make a living podcasting. I make a living being a Linux sysadmin. And I quite enjoy being a Linux sysadmin. Uh, But there are also costs involved in running a podcast. So what I'm trying to sort of get to is the point where the podcasting pays for itself. Um, And we're very close to that point, actually, which is really reassuring. Uh, and I'd like to go slightly beyond that point where it pays us for itself, not just in terms of monthly bills, but also in terms of having a little bit of spare for fixing physical things as and when they die. Um, I need a new boom for my mic. The one I have is very old and is well, 
seems to like nodding off, which is somewhat annoying. Uh, and that sort of also brought to my mind that my actual physical mic is 15 years old now. Uh, so maybe that's going to you know, inevitably give in. So even if we get to the stage where all of my monthly bills are met, I do, I realistically, before 2017 is out, I'm probably going to need another few hundred euro for physical hardware to keep going as well. So I would really like to arrive at a stage where podcasting pays for itself, not just month to month, but also year to year, if you get what I mean. So with all that said, those of you who support the show on Patreon, you always get a special thank you from me because the Patreon money is amazing. So the way it works is you pledge to support the show by X amount. And every time I release a show, X amount will be debited from your credit card, but it all happens at the end of the month, not as and when. And I do exactly two shows a month, one Apple, one photography. So if you would like to give me $10 a month, then you pledge $5. If you'd like to give me $5, you pledge $2.50. If you'd like to give me $2, then you pledge $1. If you'd like to give me $1, you pledge $0.50. Cent. You get the idea. And the great thing is I have monthly bills that come in and I have a monthly Patreon that comes in and I pour one into the other. And at this stage, they very much balance, very nearly balance each other out. Not quite, but nearly. Uh, Once they do, then I'll be able to siphon a little bit off and put that towards the new mic and mic stand fund. Um, And also software from time to time. That's another cost that comes in. Um, Although at the moment, I'm happy with my software, so I'm not... Although Logic Pro would be nice. Mm, Anyway, let's, let's not go there. Um, then there's also a plain old PayPal button, which is also a very, I also appreciate it when people push that button, let's be honest. Um, it's, it helps, it helps a lot, um, but you can't count on it. So some months no one pushes the button and some months five or six of you push the button. Um, and you know, I appreciate it whenever anyone does, but it's, it's, it's not the same steady income as from Patreon. Um, and then finally there's a Zazzle store where you can buy branded merchandise. I get a commission for selling you the branded merchandise. You then have branded merchandise, so you become a walking advertisement for the show. And that can only be a good thing. Start some conversations, tell people about the shows. And in fact, you don't have to spend a single solitary cent to support the show in a meaningful way. Just tell someone about it, like a real human being in the physical world. That That is highly valuable. Or tweet about it or facebook about it or whatever social media thing you do about it tell your friends you know in some way or another or leave a review in itunes or whatever podcasting uh, library contraption you use all of that is all helpful and all of that is all very much appreciated so it's nice it's not just about the money okay i've rattled on a bit there um thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed the show let me know what you think if you have any questions and uh until next time Happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hey Siri, could you read the three Geeky Ladies promo script? Sure. Elisa says, Welcome to the Three Geeky Ladies podcast and introduces Suse and Vicky. Suse says, Hello everyone. Vicky says, Hi. Elisa, want to know how we feel about the new Apple product? Suse, what about the iOS camera? Vicky, or the MacBook Pro update? Elisa, Suse, and Vicky in unison. Then, listen to the Three Geeky Ladies podcast. Siri, the Three Geeky Ladies podcast on the MyMac Podcasting Network.